welcome to In Good Company on NCS Radio, a monthly show for working women with me, Atega Uagba. If this is the first time you're tuning in, a quick intro. I'm the founder of Women Who, which is a London-based community for creative working women. And I'm also the author of the Sunday Times bestseller, Little Black Book, a modern career guide for working women that you can find on Amazon or all good bookstores. And in fact, I've recently published a special edition of it, which has two additional chapters and comes out on November 2nd. This podcast is all about providing you with the practical advice and fresh ideas that will help you work better, aided and abetted by some of the smart, successful, creative women I know. New episodes are released monthly, and you can listen to them live on NTS or download them via iTunes. So make sure you subscribe now to automatically get each new episode straight to your phone. Some new news on the Women Who front. We've recently launched a new event format called The Roundtables, which are a series of monthly workshops specifically created to help you find solutions to your career challenges. So maybe you're stuck in a career rut, or you need a sounding board for a project you're working on. This is the workshop for you. Part mentor session, part careers clinic, Each roundtable consists of a structured three-hour workshop led by yours truly, and they're basically a place for you to throw around ideas, build your network, and get advice from a group of like-minded women. Today I'm going to be talking to Laura Waitley, who is an award-winning journalist and The Times' consumer champion, writing the Agony Aunt column, Troubleshooter, and the Millennial Money column in the Saturday Money section. She's also the author of the recently published Money, a user's guide, which pretty much does what it says on the tin. It's a practical guide to handling your personal finances that basically explains how everything works, from buying a house and student loans to paying off debt and figuring out whether or not to open an ISA. Put simply, if you've got a question, this book has all the answers. I could not recommend it more highly because it basically answers all the questions that you're either too embarrassed or too clueless to ask anyone else. I've decided to mix things up this month in order to take advantage of the fact that we have a bona fide money expert on the show. So instead of our usual Ask a Tega segment, this month we've got a special Ask Laura segment, where she'll be answering a few of the money questions that you guys have sent me over the past couple of days. Okay, now that I've gotten that out of the way, here's my conversation with Laura. I wouldn't actually call myself a money guru. Lots of people have since this book has been written. I think of myself as a money journalist and over the last 10 years or so of writing about money I've learned loads and I know more than the average person but ultimately I'm pretty good at asking people who have professional money qualifications what other people should do with their money and then interpreting it I suppose for for people like me or my friends or people who might not have financial qualifications or feel very comfortable about money. So maybe more of a money translator I think that's a good way of putting it, definitely. Yeah, that's how I think of it. Like a communicator about money, I suppose. And that is what journalism is. Yeah, I think so. Explaining what can be quite complicated topics or areas into language and ways that people can understand it better. And have you always been good with money or is that even making an assumption? Are you good with money now? (laughs) Um, I'm so much better than I used to be. I often compare it to if you're a doctor and you smoke or you drink a lot. Being a doctor doesn't mean that you're not tempted to do bad things to your body, even that you know the theory. So I would say, even though I know the theory and the things that I should be doing, I don't always follow my own advice. But I used to be much worse about money and I used to not know anything. So when I say know anything, I wasn't really paying attention to what was happening with my bank balance. I didn't really understand what credit history was. I didn't really understand. I had no idea what stocks and shares were, for example. So I would say when I was a student, my flatmates, my parents would say I was absolutely awful with money. (laughs) And as I've been writing about it and learning about it and growing up, essentially, I have become a bit more aware of what I should be doing and started to put it into practice. I think that's quite reassuring for anyone who, I don't know, I think it's quite, people tend to label themselves as, oh, I'm terrible with money, I'm bad Mm. with money, especially, I think, women. Um, And it's quite reassuring to hear that you kind of can evolve, your relationship with your money can evolve, and you just kind of have to put in a bit of time and effort to kind of investigate it a bit. Yeah. Interestingly, as I've been researching the book, I've asked a lot of people about money, a lot of my friends and people colleagues and and absolutely everyone says oh I'm terrible with money I need help so I think it's a universal feeling it's just something we don't talk about that much Mm. and 
I also slightly object, even though I would call myself in the past bad with money and sometimes I struggle with spending too much. I like expensive <laughs> things. Um, <laughs> I sort of, there. Is, I don't think that there is an objective. I Being good with money is not a science. And I think it often is treated as such. I think there's a lot of people who think oh, this is what you should do with your money. You should save, you shouldn't eat avocados, you should make sure that you have a massive pension. And I really think it's quite a subjective individual thing what you should do with your money. It's up to you how you want to spend and save, whether you want to save at all. It, it is so dependent on your circumstances and the kind of personality that you have. So in that sense, I think, I suppose there is being good with money in living within your means and not getting in trouble and perhaps understanding how you can better your situation. I think it's about not being put off by the numbers. Yeah. So when you're looking at, say, like a credit card or a payday loan, not actually trying to pay attention to what the APR is. Um, what is APR? What does that stand for? <laughs> I was just going to say. Uh, <laughs> it is annual percentage rate. So what it is, is how any loan product is categorised. So it's basically interest rate. Okay. That's what I thought it was. Yeah, but it it can incorporate fees and charges too. Okay. So a company can't say their interest rate is really low, but they then charge a £100 a year fee. That makes sense. Does that make sense? Yes. So if it's a big number, you're going to pay a lot of money. Mm. So the higher the APR, the more the money you might have to pay. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. But we're going slightly off track because yeah. I want to go Sorry. back to your career. Yeah. So you left university and you knew you wanted to be a journalist. What did you do next? Yeah, so when I was at university, I got involved with a student paper. I was a lifestyle editor Ooh. and I wrote about fashion and food and sex. Loads of fun things. <laughs> and not money. And yeah, so I did economics, but I failed it the first year because it was really loads of maths, loads of statistics, and it just wasn't what I wanted to be doing. On reflection, I regret the fact that I didn't pay more attention in my lectures, but that's what <laughs> it's happens. All now. It's all done yeah, now. It's all done now. It doesn't matter anymore. So I dropped economics after the first year, um, did politics and philosophy, and then I did student journalism. And when I was at the student paper, my editor at the time, Matt, said, oh, if you want to be a journalist, you need to do a postgraduate course. Well, that is how a lot of people get into journalism, because I didn't really know anyone in the media. Mm. I didn't have any contacts. And as you all know, having contacts is unfortunately really important, partly just for confidence, I think, to feel that journalism is, is something that you can do. I think mm. I always saw it as this scary world in London that was full of celebrities and not something that was necessarily that accessible. Mm. Anyway, he said, go to City or Cardiff, they're the best. So I sat down with my mum and dad and was like, look, I really want to do postgraduate course. And they agreed to loan me some money and I took out a career development loan to do a year at City University, which I'm so glad I did because I met so many interesting people and did work experience as part of the course, which meant I went to some funny publications. I did Mother and Baby magazine, Children and Young People Now magazine, uh, then I went to Observer Woman. Do you remember Observer Woman for a mm. while? And I did work experience at the Times because someone on the course knew someone at the Times and yeah. I could email as it often happens. And I really enjoyed it. I did it for a few weeks. I made friends with someone on the body and soul section, which is where I was doing my work experience. And she said to me, they're looking for an editorial assistant, which is quite a junior role on the money section. You should apply for it. Obviously, at the time, I thought that was totally ludicrous because I knew nothing about money, in inverted commas. I thought I didn't know anything about money. I didn't really know what a mortgage was. So I thought, well, why not? It's the Times. This will be a great opportunity. So I did lots of Wikipediaing, <laughs> And I went to my interview and, unbelievably, I got hired. Um, I think it was, it was such a junior role and I think they, I had quite good qualifications and I'd been to City and I was really interested and I was quite enthusiastic about learning and it was at a time as I've written in my book that Damon Brothers had just collapsed so they were really desperate for people to write about money so it was a, in a sense even though the recession was looming it was a great time to be starting to write about how it was affecting real people's lives. And you've now been at the Times for is it 10 years? Yeah unbelievably. Wow which is also like the kind of anti-millennial 
narrative that we hear about millennials job hopping. But anyway, I'll put that to one side. But I'm intrigued because you said you kind of essentially graduated into what then turned out to be a recession. Mm. And I'm quite intrigued as to what role money has played, whether the pursuit of it or the lack of it. What role has that played in your career trajectory and your ambitions? I think when I started out, I was probably a bit naive about it. I didn't really think about money that much. I mean, I obviously needed to earn some money. And actually, so when I left City, I had done some work experience on the course. I left City in the summer of 2008. And I was desperately seeking a job because I'd been renting a flat and it was about to come to an end. And I thought, right, OK, I really need some money now. So I was, I did need money. and I And I think at that point in time, had the job at the times not come up, I would have probably had to move back home. My mum and dad live in Bath and have a bit of a rethink about what I wanted my career to be and whether I could still pursue journalism because it's hard to to get a job a conventional way in journalism. That is, is one of those industries that's still a bit about who you know and luck, you know, right place, right time, as I was in the right place, right time. But I think I just knew I wanted to write and... Uh, I was curious. I liked the idea of, uh, of sort of telling stories and communicating ideas. So I hadn't really thought, oh, is this going to be a lucrative career or not? I just thought, am I going to have enough money to rent a flat and have a nice life? I think as I've got older, I see that you know, things have worked out well, but I see that it isn't necessarily... I don't know what the future holds for journalism in general. And I see that, you know, had I studied law or medicine, <laughs> I would have a bit of a more obvious trajectory or or a more secure life ahead. But I think because at the time the recession hadn't, the implications of it weren't necessarily that obvious. So I was quite lucky. I'm 33 now. I was quite lucky that I just got a job at a time when flats was expensive but still relatively affordable. I was I was renting a flat with three friends in Bethnal Green. I probably paid about five hundred pounds a month rent, which is unthinkable now. I know, like a few minutes walk to Bethnal Green Tube. So I was lucky in that I could afford to start out in a job with a crappy initial wage and rent a flat and you know, go out in Bethnal Green. It wasn't that expensive. Mm. It was still quite, still quite expensive, but not like it is now. Mm. I think my so my sister's four school years younger than me, so she was about four years behind. And I think for her and her friends, having that initial starting wage in London and then trying to rent a flat was much much harder. Yeah, I'm I'm about the same age as your sister, and I think things were quite different for me. And I remember working, um, so I worked in advertising. I just remember talking to people who were. Yeah, about your age, maybe about four or five years older than me. And they kind of had this narrative of their early 20s. And, you know, they'd be like, why guys, why don't you guys go out anymore? And why are you guys living at home? And it was like, it's just in that five years, things have changed massively for people emerging into the workforce. And I don't think they quite got that. Yeah, I think it's totally true. I think the biggest issue is that, well, there's many issues, housing, obviously. Um, but connected to housing, I think the problem is that wages haven't gone up. So how much I earned when I started out, obviously I've earned more money now and, and we'll talk about it, I'm sure, but I went freelance about four years ago, which, which changed things a lot. But I haven't, salaries in journalism haven't gone through the roof. They haven't been rising with no, inflation. So people have essentially been losing money and, and getting poorer because you're not earning, earning enough to keep up with the rising cost of living, let alone the rising cost of housing. So... In that sense, I, my, me and my friends were quite lucky that we were the age we were, that we could still afford to, to rent in London and start our careers mm. out in London. And make those decisions. I'm quite intrigued, actually. I want to talk about the fact that you went freelance four years ago. What prompted you to do that? Because you're still working, I guess, part-time or partly for the times. Yeah, so, so for the first six years, I guess, I was full-time at the Times, full-time on the money desk. And... Just writing, I mean, for the first couple of years, I was editorial assistant. So I did write some articles, but ultimately I was mainly doing admin and the letters page. And and then I became more of a reporter after a couple of years and I started writing consumer column, which I write now. And I think after a few years of that, I felt 
I should shake things up a little bit. I'd started to write for the travel section. So one of the great things about working for a newspaper is that once you're in, you can really get to know people and other sections and, and editors are quite willing for you to try your hand at different things. So I was keen to do travel journalism. So I was doing a few travel pieces, but I didn't, it was hard to take the time off in annual leave to, to, to go to do a travel article. So I decided to shake things up. I'd go freelance, try and do more traveling and travel pieces. And also I wanted to do a few other property articles, interiors articles. My money editor now is also the property editor of the Times and, and she was giving me some opportunities to write some property stuff. I think I just wanted to change things, yeah, change I, things up. Perhaps it was a bit crazy at the time. A lot of people said that you're absolutely crazy. You know, a staff job at a newspaper is gold dust. But I think if you I, know, look I was at, in my 20s, I was, I was mad. I just was like, you know what? Who cares? I just want to do something different. So. I think if you also look at the landscape now in journalism and, and media, I think, yes, I understand why people said that, but I think I'm seeing so many, not to be doom and gloom, but so many... Um, newspapers kind of laying off staff writers anyway so I almost feel like making that jump and adjusting to it before you're pushed is quite sensible not that that's necessarily why you did it but I don't think trading in a staff job to go freelance is as crazy as people think it is um, these days. No I do agree actually and I think you know journalism is changing and as you say even staff jobs aren't secure it's not job for life like it used to be so I thought there's no, I actually, I'm really glad I did it. It's been great for me because it helped me to diversify. And my editor, uh, the money editor at the Times would say, and that it's important to try and do different things. I think it's important to find a niche. I think money has been that for me and that has enabled me to, to have lots of opportunities. But it's it's good to have different things, different strings to your bow, different things you can do um, should should things not work out with mm. one area you think right okay I can pursue this other this other area I definitely agree um I'm quite curious because obviously you write about money and talk about money a lot and you've just published this book I think I presume you've had to learn to be quite open about money but do you get people asking you like overly intrusive or overly personal questions about your own personal finances and how do you handle that when you do funnily enough no which I think's Interesting, isn't it? Maybe I will now. Once the once I think you definitely out. will. Um, <laughs> sorry to break it to uh, you. I I think money. I I would feel quite uncomfortable about it because, which is ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous, but it's because we live in a society that doesn't really talk about money comfortably. When I was writing the book, I re- I've written about this too. When I was writing the book, I talked to all my friends about money, probably for the first time. I mean, obviously, we used to say, "Oh, I'm really broke. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't afford to go to this." restaurant in Hackney tonight but we I don't know how much any of them earn which is really weird I think and I said this to my best friend the other day I said I don't actually know how much money you earn she doesn't know how much money I earn but we didn't tell each other I was about to say did you not no then... and then we changed the subject and which is I don't know why <laughs> I well I, I want to ask why what's your opinion on why money is something that there is such a stigma around talking about openly especially I think when it comes to salaries why do you think that is I think money represents power doesn't it so I think if unfortunately I think there's an there's a sense that if you've got more money I mean there is a truth in it if you've got more money you've got more power and freedom to do do certain things so I, I think that there is there is a, a protectiveness about wanting to reveal your own money situation because it might see, make you seem less powerful or, or less successful, in inverted commas, than, than your contemporaries. Mm. I think it's more of a problem now, actually, for... I mean, there's obviously a traditional Britishness about not wanting... It's impolite to talk about money. But I think now, because of the situation with housing and wages that there are real splits in friendship groups, for example, among people who can afford to buy a house because they've got help from their parents and people who can't. And people who studied together who've got the same qualifications, they're just as smart as each other, they've they've gone into just as lucrative careers, but there's this actual huge wealth gap because they can't afford a house. Mm, I'm seeing that emerge. So I'm in my late 20s. 
And I think when I graduated and when we all started working, I think regardless of, you know, some people doing corporate jobs and earning quite a lot, others were, you know, struggling artists, but we all kind of had quite similar lifestyles. But I definitely think that I'm seeing that wealth gap emerge in our mid to late 20s and early 30s as people either start to buy houses um, or don't and are stuck renting. And I think it's a really interesting thing. I'm quite, I actually want to talk about housing and house buying because in your book you wrote somewhat depressingly <laughs> um most under 30s however diligent will never be able to buy a decent sized home in a great part of an exciting british city on their salary alone do you want to explain that sure so when you buy a house you need a deposit and then the rest of it is topped up unless you're really rich the rest of it is topped up um with a mortgage which is money that you borrowed from the bank so the bigger your deposit, the less you need to borrow. Now, the real problem now is that banks will only lend you about four, maybe five at a push times your salary. So if you think about how expensive housing is and how wages have stagnated, are actually falling in some cases. There was some research um, a few weeks ago saying that people in their 20s, oh, sorry, in their 30s are earning about £2,000 less than people in the 30s in 2008. Mm. So we're learning less. Housing is really expensive. You can only borrow four or five times your salary, which isn't actually that much money. So you need either a massive deposit or you need to buy with someone else, mm. which is what... So I, I often look at our parents' generation and even, to be honest, people who are in their 40s now um, and 50s, they were able to buy on their own. They could afford to because you housing was so much cheaper that you didn't need as big a multiple of your... Well, the multiple was the same of your salary, so you could still borrow, say, three or four times your salary. But housing was cheap. And I think that's the problem now, that people struggle to buy on their own because they just don't earn enough money, even if you earn those. There was another piece of research that, that said the average salary you need to buy on your own in any UK city is £53,000. And that's significantly higher than the average UK salary. Oh, yeah. Like twice, nearly twice yeah. the average UK salary. So there's a, there's a real problem that if you don't have a massive deposit, even if you do have a massive deposit, you still, you still need to earn a lot of money to mm. be able to borrow enough in a mortgage. And then you're saddled with a massive mortgage. Yeah, and that well, has its own that. pressures. And the affordability of that. I'm going to ask you a personal question. Um, which is that because I, I know that you own your house. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering, as someone who is within this generation, the millennial generation who supposedly can't afford houses, how did you manage to do that? It's all down to my other half. I've married well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think we've talked about this before. I think it's so important that people who do manage to buy a house fess up to how. Yes. Because people don't. And you're like, how the hell have you, are you some like freelance blogger and you've managed to buy a, buy a massive house? <laughs> um, so I met my now husband. I got married last year and we bought a house together last year. So Congratulations. Very exciting. Um, so I met him about 11 years ago now. Oh my God. And we rented separately and then we rented together for a year. And then when he was 25, he inherited some money from his dad who died when he was a kid and it wasn't an enormous amount of money it was like a deposit amount mm. of money and the most sensible thing for him to do was to to buy a flat in London with it and we were already living together it was like okay so what's going to happen now as I say in the book like am I going to be sleeping with my landlord <laughs> how are we going to figure God. this out it was it was awkward um Anyway, he bought this flat in Stepney Green and we lived there together and for quite a number of years until, well, until about a year ago. And then, and during that time, because of what's happened to house prices, the, ha the flat increased in value loads and it enabled me to save money. So we had an arrangement because it, it was awkward. It's like, what do I do? You know, it makes financial sense for me to live there. We also really like living together. I couldn't really afford, I mean, I could have afforded to, to stop living with him and, and rented with friends, but it would have been weird because we'd so already lived together. step in your relationship. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So um, what we decided to do was that I would, he would pay the mortgage. I would have nothing to do with it. But we'd keep reviewing the situation because obviously 
that was not enabling me to get on the housing ladder and benefit from that. But there's no way I could have done that. I mean, I had no money. So, so I didn't pay rent. I saved it in a savings account for both of us. So during that time, I was in a really lucky position that I could save money towards a deposit for me to buy with him. And obviously, he had value in a property. Buying it several years ago was a really good move. So at the end of of period, we decided to get married and we decided to to buy a flat together. Mm. I think it's really important to kind of share that story because I think that's that specific situation of one partner being able to buy um, a property and the other person not is something that I think I'm seeing playing out repeatedly in like my social and friendship circles and it's something that you tackled in the book which I think is really important because money and relationships can often be a really toxic situation something else that I want to talk about is how people manage things and this doesn't necessarily need to be about your own specific situation but your thoughts on the best way of managing money when in a relationship partners earn quite drastically different amounts it's it is tricky I think there's no I often look at oh I think it's quite a new dilemma for young people I guess it's been around a while but it's not something that was necessarily faced by previous generations because of the depressing fact that men tended to earn significantly more I know there's still Mm. a gender pay gap but Mm. you know by my grandma's generation my grandma stopped working when she got married so she literally didn't earn any money for the rest of her life and the expectation might be more of a given that you would either stop working or you would kind of be dependent on your husband or your male partner's salary exactly. but now it's so there was that expectation and yeah. that, and then and you know sometimes those although there's, there's so much wrong, wrong with those kind of situations when we look back at least you didn't have to discuss what you're going to do mm. because there was there, no there was totally a societal I get that. I get expectation that. whereas now they're really although I would argue there are many many ways in which uh, money is gendered there you know women and men who I know are, are both in equally great careers and when you come together you think okay how are we going to figure this out how are we going to split our money the expectation is that there'll be sort of an equal contribution in some ways exactly so I mean I would say it's really important to think about if you're cohabiting the fact that you don't have any legal rights I think lots of people still don't realize this so when you get married and you and if you split up you are entitled to maintenance to my, you know you can't be left destitute by your by your partner if you live in a house together you have rights if you aren't married you really don't so this was the situation so with with me and my now husband my boyfriend then then when we lived together he had the mortgage i could have lived there for decades and he and I would have had no rights over the house, even if I had been informally giving him cash in the mm. mortgage. So I think it's really important to recognise that and to maybe tr- just try and talk about it. I know it's difficult, but just to figure out together, okay, we are, you know, it is possible that we might split up. What should we do if we if if we are yeah you know, if if that possibility happens, or try and figure out a contract or a system up front so that you can then forget about it. I think yeah. that's what I found helpful with with my other half. We didn't just want to keep talking about it all the time. You're like, right, we're in this situation. You've got more money than I have. You own the flat, I don't. So let's lay some ground rules down so we don't keep having to discuss it and it keep being an issue. Mm. Let's review it once a year to see where we're at. And you earn money and it goes in your account. I earn money, it goes in my account. We have a joint account for these bills and we can't judge each other if we choose to spend money from our own accounts in the ways that we want to. <laughs> that sounds very healthy. <laughs> it probably sounds easier. It's easier said than done, right? But so I think it's really important to keep talking about it, but also recognise that that it that it can be toxic. I um, spoke to some counsellors. I was writing the book, and someone from Relate, and they said money is the number one problem they see people fall out. Again, it's that power thing. Money is. You know, if you've got more money, you're seen to have more power and that can be true in a relationship too. Mm. I want to talk a bit, I, just before we move on from house buying, I want to talk about something that I think will probably be relevant to a lot of the women listening to this, which is house buying and navigating that when you're self-employed. Because my understanding, and it might be false, but from the conversations I've had and people I've spoken to is that things are 
it's harder to get a mortgage when you're self-employed. So I'm wondering, you know, in terms of practical steps that you can take to either put yourself in a good position to get a mortgage, you know, what can people do? How far ahead do you have to be thinking? Because again, I think it's different for self-employed people than it is for people working a nine to five. Yeah, it's true. So it used to be much easier to get a mortgage if you are self-employed. They used to have these things that have now been nicknamed liar loans. I've heard of those. Yeah, because you basically used to be able to say, hey, I earn this much money. And the bank was like, sure, have, no problem. Have as big a mortgage as you want. And they were banned in 2014. So now it is it is more difficult if you're self-employed. But I, people shouldn't be put off. It's, it, it's possible. I, I, I think most people tend to say if you want to buy a house make sure you're really focusing on it at least six months before you want to buy because you need to sort out your credit history and you need to when you when you apply to buy a house you have to show them your bank statements so you've got to be a little bit careful what's on your bank statements they don't like payday loans they don't like gambling they don't like crazy cash withdrawals at three in the morning (laughs) so that's important (laughs) actually another one which I think is really fascinating and I've done this so many times and I didn't realize till recently it's bad is that you know when you transfer money to friends and you can write in a payment reference oh my god so you should never write in that payment reference anything funny I do that all the time I know so there was someone who was directed from mortgage because they had put drugs money in the bank transfer oh my god and I like recently I uh, organized a friend's hen do and someone had sent me um a bank transfer saying strip a dollar so you know <laughs> I mean like this stuff happens all Shit. the time and actually banks can see that on your statement and I mean come on I imagine they're probably a bit humorless no yeah, but I mean yeah, yeah well I can imagine that you know they've got dozens of people or thousands of people who want mortgages so it's quite easy for them to say no and say that you're a risk factor yeah okay that's a really good bit so of don't do that like okay. as in so six months or so before just be extra careful and tell you or maybe just don't let your friends send you any money because they might wind you up and put drug because actually it's your friends what they say it's what they send to you ah, as well as what you send because okay. what if, if someone sends you 10, 10 pounds saying drug money um it will appear in your bank statement. Okay, I'm going to ask for all my drug money and cash from now on. <laughs> um, okay, so, so yeah, that's one so, so you need to do that, whether you're self-employed or not, but it's extra important if you're self-employed. You need really to have been self-employed about two years. Most banks will ask for two years of account. Some will want three. Three is better, but, you know, don't think I can't do this because I've not been self-employed mm. for long enough. Some banks will be fine with one year of accounts um there are a few building societies build i would say building societies are always quite a good place to start because often they're more local customer service can be can be superior and they might be able to take a bit more of a view because a lot of big banks are just kind of computer says no yeah you're self-employed you haven't worked as a self-employed person for longer than two years no um I've got a few mentions in the book. I think one is Newcastle Building Society. Okay. Halifax, I think. But again, you have to have a really great credit score often. So how do you improve your credit score? How do I improve my credit uh, there's score? There's quite a lot of tips. I've, again, I've written loads in the book. Um, one of the problems is for younger people, you don't, not that you've abused debt, but that you don't, haven't been in enough debt. It's a horrible irony that if you leave university, for example, and you've never had a credit card and you've never had a mortgage that can count against you because they've the bank's got nothing to go on. Okay. So they want to see that you have managed to borrow money responsibly in order to lend you more. It's a bit chicken and egg, really. Mm. So I would always say if that's your problem, you should take out a credit card and spend very carefully on it, pay it off in full each month and don't spend more than about 30% of the limit. limit. Yeah. So do that. Um, make sure you're on the electoral roll. Lots of people forget to do that and you will not get a mortgage if you're not on the electoral roll because they use that to check you are who you say you are and okay. check so you what you want to do is check your credit file through there's three credit rating agencies Experian Equifax and Call Credit so go and look at that at least six months before you want to buy mm. check what's on there and if there are any errors you can put a little note on it saying or not even errors, if you missed a bill, those kind of, so you missed an energy bill when you moved out of a student flat. I did this when I was younger. I missed a mobile phone payment because I was just not, yeah. I wasn't very good with my money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it stays on your credit file for six years. Yeah, it's really bad. It will diminish, the power of it will diminish over time. But these things 
are not very sensible if you want to try and buy a house. So what you can do is go and look at your credit history. And if there's something like that on there and you've got a good excuse for it, for example, well, I had just lost my job then or I was had a family illness or I was ill. And, or you moved house and yeah, didn't get the bill. Yeah. Exactly. And you can just add that on. So that's important. So and when it comes to how much you can borrow as a self-employed person, banks think the worst. So it varies because they all, you know, every bank is different. But if you've been earning more money over the last few years, so if your income keeps going up as a self-employed person, then they will tend to take an average over the past two years of your earnings. If your money has dipped for whatever reason, they will tend to take the lowest amount to use that as an income multiple. And as I said, you can only borrow maybe four or five times how much you earn. Okay, that's good to know. Um, I want to change tack. Well, still talking about self-employment, but more about the kind of ins and outs and the practical side of it and more the way you deal with your finances. Because I found that when I became self-employed from, I went from working in nine to five to becoming self-employed, the way I dealt with my finances really changed quite a lot. Um, You know, things like saving up a financial buffer and separating, you know, your personal and your business accounts and expenditure. Like, I'm curious to what are the sort of key things that people need to know when they're navigating that jump? And what were the kind of key things that you did when you went from being a nine-to-fiver to to being self-employed? I think you need a little bit of savings or some kind of safety net. I think I was really lucky that I had the freedom to go freelance because I lived with my boyfriend and I was my rent was going into savings and you know we had an agreement where I couldn't stop paying that but I wasn't he wasn't going to boot me out because for a month or two I couldn't afford it Mm. so although I did have some savings in order to go freelance I knew that it was not going to result in me losing my house I think so I think it's really important if you're starting to go freelance just to just be aware that you probably won't earn loads of money immediately. Mm. Someone, another girl who'd gone freelance gave me some good advice. She said, don't panic about how much you're earning until you've been doing it a year. Think, basically think you won't earn any money for the first six months. I know it depends what kind of freelancing or self-employment you're going into. but So I would, you have to go into it thinking this first year is I'm not going to have much. And I, I just was way more frugal than normal for the first year of, of being freelance. I, because my freelance finances are fairly straightforward in that I earn money from my journalism through payments for articles, I don't have complicated accounts. So I've always done it myself. Oh, really? Yeah. You don't have an accountant? No. Okay. I'm thinking of it now, possibly, because I've started doing some writing for an American website and... I get paid in dollars and yeah, it gets a bit more complicated and I've now written a book and so my income stream is diversifying. But no, I have never really thought it's worth the money. I, I have a little example in the book actually of whether or not you should get an accountant. And it's, oh, great. Yeah, it's, it's essentially work out whether it's worth your time, work out how much your time costs and whether, the, whether having an accountant will actually work out as, as more lucrative because you're saving time. Mm. Also, I think I, I would recommend it perhaps if you've got more complicated finances and they're quite good at fi- understanding tax breaks and pensions, things like that. I think people might feel more confident having an expert help them out. I think that's definitely been the case with me because I was pretty much as soon as I became self-employed, I set myself up as a limited company and that is a little bit more complicated in filing taxes. And I got an accountant straight away who I think initially I was, part of the reason that I found important to have an accountant was because I was navigating this whole new way of working. And I think he earned his fee in my questions. Like I literally peppered him with questions for like maybe the first six months or year. And I then became VAT registered and I can't do my VAT returns. Well, I can, but I don't know how to do my VAT returns myself. But I think, you know, something that we've talked about before is certain things that you pay for, you know, sort of shortcuts that you pay for is kind of peace of mind. Mm. So I don't necessarily know whether having an accountant for the first year or two of my being self-employed was value for money. But for me, it was a sum that I was willing to pay in order to not have to think about that 
and in order to be able to ask this person questions constantly. But I do appreciate it's different for different people. Yeah, I completely agree. I think paying for peace of mind is so worth it. And I think if you're VAT registered and limited company, it does get more complicated. But for me, if you've got very straightforward money coming in that needs to be taxed, expenses that are obvious, you know, like my newspaper subscriptions, magazine subscriptions, or money that I've spent on travel for work, I literally just print out my bank statements Mm. in early January, often very near the deadline. (laughs) (laughs) And I take different coloured highlighter pens and I go through my income and I go through my expenses and then I just sort of, with a calculator, work it out. And that has been quite straightforward. Yeah, I think that is, I think it can be straightforward. It It depends on your setup. It totally depends on your setup, yeah. And do you have any budgeting tips for anyone? Because this is something... I don't have a sort of a very firm budget. I pay myself a certain amount each month, which is quite a low amount. And as much as possible, I try not to go over it. Um, I think I sort of withdrew a little bit extra at various points this summer because I was having a very fun summer. But generally, I have like a set salary that I don't go over. And that for me is my budget. So I kind of thought in advance of really what I need to what you know how much I'll spend in a month what's a reasonable amount for me to spend on transport and fun stuff and you know obligations and then I don't go over that but how do you handle your budgeting quite similar I think that's very sensible I feel that I have to uh, for so many years I didn't budget my parents (laughs) would kill me to think (laughs) about it I mean when I think about it now at the university it was terrible because I just sort of spent until I ran out of money and then was like, right, that's it. I'm just going to have to eat toast and baked beans for the rest of the term. So as I've got older, I've got a bit more sensible. I But I have to pay myself first. I mean, I mean that figuratively. So when my money comes in, I move it immediately out of my current account to various different pots. So I have a joint account, which is my household bills. And I have a savings account for fun stuff like holidays and clothes. And then I have a tax pot because that's the problem if you're self-employed, right? You have to save your tax in advance, which is not always easy because you don't always know how much you need to save. So I always try and oversave. Same. To be on the safe side. Um, so I think that's really important. And as you say, just trying to take the time to sit, because you can save so much money, so much more money than you might imagine by actually sitting down and working out how much you want to save. I know that sounds silly, but no, I think it's, you can, it's so easy to just waste bits and bobs because you haven't added up how much all that stuff is costing. So yeah, I would, and it's really much easier now because of technology. So I use, I have a bank with Monzo and I've moved my current account fully to Monzo. Have you? I've yeah. been considering that because when they first came out and I tried them because it was that sort of top up thing, mm. I just got quite annoyed because that was like an extra step I needed to take. But I am aware that they've become like a proper bank. Yeah. Um, so I've been considering that. Would you recommend it? In yeah, sort I really of... like it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, this is just for my personal life. This is not professional, no professional she recommendation. She does not represent the times at this point. No, no suing, guys. <laughs> I mean, Starlings does the same sort of thing. Yeah. But I find it better to have all my current account there because then I can use it to really see how yeah, I'm spending my money. Exactly. I mean, on TFL, it's amazing how much you get through on TFL, for example. My, that's, that's honestly my biggest monthly expense, oh. transport. I, I couldn't believe it. But when you sit down and look at everything, that is the biggest... Well, because I don't pay rent, which is something that I talk about quite openly because I have the privilege of being able to live at home with my parents. So rent aside, um, which and I kind of save the amount that I would be paying and all of that. But my biggest monthly expenditure after housing, technically, is TFL. And mm-hmm. I find that crazy um but that's a whole another conversation yeah I want to ask you um you kind of talked about a few of your own kind of money mistakes or how you've evolved money wise but what are some of the biggest mistakes that you observe people around you making whether it's your friends or whether people who write into you like what are the money mistakes that millennials are making I think there is what we've just been talking about budgeting mistakes people just bury their head in the sand and don't look at their bank balance I used to do that. You just sort of ignore it until you run out of money and then worry about it, which I wish so much that I had 
not done that 10 years ago because I think of all the money that I've wasted by just not paying attention to it. So I think on a on a low level, people waste so much money by just not paying attention, being too scared to look at their bank balance. I totally understand why. But I think it's quite important to see how much is going to TFL, see how much you're spending, and then and then you can it's much easier to save. I think one of the biggest things I see with readers is people signing up to products they just don't understand. Mm. Some of the saddest mistakes where people have lost the most money or more than money that damaged their health. So I, I had one example of a guy who took out income protection, which is insurance to pay out if you can't work. And it's really important if you're self-employed. If you don't, well, it's really important if you don't know what you'd do if you couldn't work because you were in an accident or and you don't have a safety net say a partner or parents exactly yeah so if you really think I would be so screwed I couldn't pay my rent I couldn't pay my mortgage if I got ill then you probably want to think about how to protect your income but there's quite a lot of income protection products that essentially don't pay out so this one guy he was in his 30s he was a chauffeur and he had really terrible health internal bleeding he was in hospital but he had an income protection policy so he thought he'd be fine but he'd signed up to a cheap one which only paid out if he couldn't do certain tasks what they call work tasks so they were ridiculously easy like hold a pen walk 100 meters I don't think it was even even as far as that talk loudly enough for someone in the same room to hear you all of these things he could do from his hospital bed so the insurer said look we're not going to pay that's insane. So I think there are quite a few things like that where people sign up to cheap products because mm. they don't understand them and then they get really screwed later down the line because they think, oh, it's okay, I've got income protection or it's okay, I've got travel insurance or it's okay because I've got this, I don't know, financial product that will protect me. And then, so that's a problem and why pe- why I think it's worth paying attention to what you're buying. Con- I think cheap insurance is just the biggest false economy and it's mm. something that I... I touch with thankfully haven't had to rely on but I remember the and maybe this was also about earning more money but I remember the mindset switch in my 20s between going on you know money supermarket and picking the cheapest one I could find mm. to actually I'd say going for a brand name that I recognized and also paying more like I I sort of avoid the cheapest ones just by virtue of them being the cheapest ones paying more and feeling a bit stung by the price and then actually going through the policy and seeing what the excess is and you know what the circumstances are because I think you know that's the thing as well you can think that you know you're covered for a five pound holiday insurance fee but so that's not going to give you anything it's going to be really unrealistic and it's point it's It's just a waste of money yeah it's pointless to have really cheap insurance that's just not going to pay out when you need it so another mistake I think a lot of people make is being frightened of investment so people tend to have savings in a savings account, a cash savings account. This is me. I feel like you're <laughs> about to drag me. Go on, let's have it. And I think a lot of people are really frightened of stock market investment. They think that it's not for them or that it's for really rich people. It's really complicated or you have to be really good at maths. And actually, it's not as risky as some people make out if you invest quite sensibly. Now, I would always say investments only if you've got savings that you want to grow long term and you have enough money, which is obviously for a lot of young people not possible when you've looked at housing and um, cost of living and transport. But if you, for example, have a bit of inheritance or a bit of a bonus at work or, or you just want to save for your pension, I would not be totally frightened of stock market investment, but you have to make sure you're happy to lock your money away for about five to 10 years. Yeah, least. that's the thing that you always hear that because, you know, the market might go down overall in sort of the long term, it will likely go up. But if it's money that you'll need back in, say, three years to buy a house, then that might not be. Is that correct? Is that Yeah, I mean, there's no guarantee that the stock market will rise. But <laughs> Sorry, so, guys, uh, I am not a financial expert. Well, no, Don't I mean, that, me. a lot of people say that. Lots of people say it will based on what's happened in the past, but obviously that's just based on what's happened in the past. Mm. However, the general sense is that you probably will make more money longer term because money in a cash account will definitely lose money because of inflation. So a lot of interest rates on saving cash savings accounts are really bad. They're under the rate of inflation. So your your cash is literally losing money long term. 
Oh my god! I literally, uh, yeah, I need to sort my sort my life out. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question, which is as you know, as someone who is immersed in the world of money and writes about money and thinks about money a lot on a daily basis, I'm really really curious as to what your definition of success is. Can money buy happiness? I think. I think obviously the answer should be no, but I think. Not having any money, obviously, can make you extremely unhappy. I think money buys freedom and choice and the ability to be creative. I think, um, so my partner's dad, who, as I mentioned before, died when he was a kid, wrote him a letter before he died um, and detailing that mon- he, w- he told him that he was leaving him a sum of money and he said, I want this money to give you the freedom to be creative and I think it's easy to be creative and to pursue interesting ventures if you've got a financial safety net so I think money is important as a means to to do what you want to do but ultimately success is just making choices about the kind of life you want to lead isn't it I don't think earning loads of money for the sake of it and having a massive house and being shackled to a massive mortgage because it makes you you look successful in a conventional way it is necessarily much of a route to happiness certainly not for me Mm, me neither but I think it's easy to say don't worry about money if if you don't have to worry about money precisely that That's very true. I think that is a very thought-provoking note on which to end. Thank you so much for coming into the studio today, Laura. Thanks so much for having me. Okay, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, this month, instead of our usual career agony art segment, I'm taking advantage of the fact that we've got a money expert in the house and focusing on your money questions instead. A few days ago, I posted a photo of Laura's book on Instagram, which, in case you forgot, is called Money, A User's Guide. And I asked if anyone had any questions that they'd like to have her answer as part of this episode. And obviously the answer was yes. I've gone through all the responses and narrowed it down to two questions, the first of which came from a university student who wrote, Hi, Laura. I'm currently studying at undergraduate level and recently did a placement, so was fortunate enough to be able to save some money. What's the best way of maximising my money beyond just putting it in an ISA? Do you know what? I wouldn't automatically go for an ISA, which I think people don't always realise. So an ISA is a savings account where the interest that you earn on it is tax-free. But there is a new thing, relatively new, called a uh, savings allowance or tax... I actually can't remember what it's called. Basically, the government gives you a certain amount of money you can earn on interest from savings without paying tax, and it's really quite high... It's 500 quid for higher rate taxpayers, £1,000 for basic rate taxpayers. To earn £1,000 on savings, you're going to have to have a lot of money in savings and interest rates are really low. So there isn't necessarily an advantage in going for an ISA immediately now because you get tax-free savings allowance anyway. So I would actually, if you've got a sum of money that's not enormous to save, think about a regular savings account which are accounts that pay quite good interest, you just have to pay attention to them because you can only save a certain sum each month. So say maybe a maximum of £200 a month up to, it'll be capped. Probably, you can probably only do it for a year, but you will get better return. So I think using a savings account like that's probably better. If you want to buy a house, definitely consider a help to buy ISA or a lifetime ISA. I don't think we've got time to go into all the details of which one's better depends what your circumstances are and when you want to buy I would say rough rule of thumb if you've got at least a year before you buy use a lifetime ISA if you want to buy sooner than a year help to buy but I've got more in the book if you okay. want to understand buy the, the, buy the book for, for the real answers okay that's brilliant and I had another question which is more of a kind of broad general question which I thought was really interesting what do you think the government should be doing to financially educate people starting at school level I think they could do more. I didn't learn about money at school. Neither did my contemporaries. They should buy them your book. I That's think the, the answer, book should actually. be on the curriculum. Yeah, <laughs> everyone should have to read my book alongside To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, <laughs> I, so the good news is that uh, finance is on the uh, curriculum now for secondary school uh, pupils. I, can't, I don't know when that came in, but 
people who are at school now will learn about money, but there is talk about whether it's, we should learn about money younger at primary school because we start to have to, to think about money from a young age. Um, I'd be surprised if much stuck with people at that age, but I mean, it, it makes sense. I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's happening at secondary school because yeah. I think I'm quite lucky in my understanding of money because I'm financially literate because my parents encourage that in me. But it's definitely interesting watching some of my friends kind of navigate money and not quite understand things or make certain assumptions. And it's because I've been thinking about money since I was a teenager and even since I was a kid, to be honest. Yeah. So maybe primary school does make sense. Possibly. They say that your attitude to money is set from the age of seven, which... Oh, wow. I think... I don't know if I necessarily think that's true. I, I don't... I feel that you can you can learn. I'm I'm an example of how you can learn to be better with your money <laughs> and when you're 20s. older. Okay, that's but it's positive. not just school children. I mean, I think it's important to learn about it at school, but I think that there could be more t- to uh, educate adults because so many people, it doesn't matter how old they are, write to me with what seem like quite obvious problems and you think why didn't you know that if you took out this payday loan or you took out this really Mm. really expensive credit card and Mm. only paid minimum payments that you'd end up in really bad debt Mm. it's because people don't read the terms and conditions nobody does and companies know that so I think there could be more regulation to make sure that companies and financial companies don't sell products that are are literally profiting from people's ignorance because they are doing that or have to educate you on it beforehand like it's almost kind of interesting like if you take the parallel of something completely different but like abortion in the UK my understanding of it is that there are certain loopholes you have to go through and certain leaflets you have to read kind of and you know I've heard that you know they tell you this is the size of your fetus now like they make you you know and this is because they have definitely an agenda but they make you kind of comprehend what it is you're about to do and it's almost as though the kind of organizations and institutions that sell these financial products should also have to educate you on what might potentially happen if this goes wrong they don't have to do that I completely agree I think that's exactly what should happen and no they don't I mean if you look at how easy it is to take out payday loans there's a story in today's paper about someone who'd got into 19,000 pounds of debt on with payday loans and he could just keep borrowing and keep borrowing and I know there's a lot of products that what they will, what companies will say is, well, you should have read the terms and conditions, or you should understand how this works. Sorry, you mm. could have moved elsewhere. I there was no a, one forced you to. Yeah, so I think so. I wrote about somebody last week who'd paid three thousand five hundred pounds for a mobile phone he hadn't used for eight years. So he'd signed up for this. Huh. I know. So he signed up for this two year contract. He'd emigrated. He thought he'd cancelled it. He hadn't. He obviously. He says that the money was coming out of a savings account that he wasn't monitoring. But the mobile phone company said, well, sorry, but you should have understood that's how our contract works. So Some, someone, but think someone from that company should have gotten in touch with him when they realised that this phone hasn't been used for however long. Like I've, and I mean, I've had texts from, well, not the one I have now, but a previous contract I had when they kind of noticed I wasn't using it very much. And I, I, I was, I was just suddenly very antisocial. <laughs> but, you know, they were kind of checking in. So clearly some companies do that, but others are much more um, aggressive. Yeah, and they will really take advantage of, of sort of not just what they call customer inertia, which is essentially laziness, yeah, but ignorance because people don't realise and people don't think they're going to get shafted as much as, no. as they end up. They think, I'm really they're like incredulous. How could you possibly charge me for a product I haven't used? And they're like, well, that's sort of that's how, how we works. make our money. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. So, um, so I think there could be more regulation. And actually there is, there is they, uh, the government is looking at whether they can do more on things like contracts for mobile phones because people are being overcharged by so much. All right, guys, if you have any more money questions, be sure to pick up a copy of Laura's book, which is called Money, A User's Guide, and it's out now. It is excellent. I've read it myself and I've learned so much from reading it. Ask a Taylor will be back to normal next month. So if you've got any career questions you'd like my advice on, just email podcast at womenwho.co and let me know what's on your mind. And that's it for this month. Thank you for tuning in. For more career inspiration and information, follow Women Who at Women Who on Instagram and Twitter or head to our website www.womenwho.co to sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Roundup, or to apply for a space on our mentor workshop, The Roundtables. 
You can find me at Dataga Uagba on Instagram and Twitter. If you're listening on iTunes, don't forget to subscribe. And as always, please leave us a lovely five-star review whilst you're there. See you next time. Yeah, yeah.